Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. About three years ago, I think for the very first patron exclusive episode, when I first started doing that, uh, my buddy Ryan Downs and I watched, uh, we got out of seeing the James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, uh, which we saw in the theaters back when it was in theaters. And then we recorded like a half hour sort of response episode to that film. He reminded me of that yesterday and I went back and listened to it. And I think it might be a cool thing to share. So basically, I would recommend you watch the film, I Am Not Your Negro. It is on Prime right now. So if you have Amazon Prime, it's on Prime Video for free. You can also rent it for a few bucks elsewhere if you don't have Amazon Prime. Um, It's a really good film. Like, it's just a very well-made film. It's obviously very timely with what's been going on the last couple weeks in America with uh, George Floyd and everything else. So this is just a little kind of bonus content. Um... If you want, you could watch the video. You don't have to watch it. You could just listen to us talk about it, but I would recommend watching it first. So here is uh, my buddy Ryan and I just chatting as two white guys do sometimes about, you know, racially charged media. Uh, And Ryan is a a student of history. That is his degree and also just his lifelong passion and interest. So he has some interesting stuff to bring to the table that I wasn't aware of. All right. Uh, Hopefully this is helpful for somebody. So... We're here for one of these informal, patron-only kind of bonus conversations, and I am here with one of my best friends of my whole life, Captain Ryan Downs. We just got out of seeing the new film, I Am Not Your Negro, which is a it's kind of a documentary about James Baldwin, but really it's more like using James Baldwin's words and his footage and this outline of a book he was working on right before he died to make a larger statement about race in America, power in America. And it was a phenomenal film, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, it was, yeah. uh, Kind of a tearjerker in many ways. I think the, uh, there's a jump cut that, I was enjoying the film a lot, and then near the end there's a jump cut of uh, uh, Doris Day being in a film, and, you know, kind of focuses in, like, pretty closely on her. And then just, jump cuts to uh a black and white photograph of a lynched woman and that was like that got that got a little real pretty fast 
Yeah, so yeah. a little bit um a little bit about James Baldwin. He was a playwright, a novelist, and a civil rights and like public speaker, uh, mostly in the 60s and 70s. He wrote he lived in Paris for a while and wrote some of his best known works there, but then he came back to America basically to take part in the civil rights struggle. And now a little bit about Ryan Downs, who's here with us. Ryan, why don't you just tell people who you are, why you were interested in going to see this movie with me on mm-hmm. President's Day, by the way, which I think is pretty appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I am completely unqualified to be here. Oh, no, just kidding. Yeah, hey, that hasn't stopped me. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we've been talking a lot about history, uh, you and I, for many years. You went to school for it. I went to school for history, so I have a uh, my bachelor's degree in history. Um, lifelong student of history, especially of 20th century American history, I think is, uh, something I was interested in, focused on for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think it was your idea to go to the movie today, which, and then in the same breath, I think we were like, wow, and president's day and in the conversations we've been having about, um, politics on a national level and where that fits in to a historical context of United States politics and Western politics. And, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of a. Uh, aha moment we're like oh let's go see that movie that movie looked good yeah and uh, yeah it did not disappoint but it also shook shook me to my foundation on uh, a lot of things that i you know preconceived notions we have about race yeah so i think what we should do since probably most people will not have seen the film at least mm-hmm. not yet because it just came out we saw it in the theater mm-hmm. we should try and identify like a few claims that it made or that baldwin made uh, or connections between concepts that are not normally thought of and just talk about those for a few minutes each and then maybe that will pique people's interest in the film itself. So the first one that I thought was interesting and we spoke a little bit about this on the car ride home, he says that if white Polish civilians were to rise up in arms against uh a government that didn't treat them well. Soviet Union. Yeah, example. right. Or if, um, you know, basically any any sort of white national group around the world or European, Americans would applaud them for resisting the oppressor. But if black Americans were to do it toward their white oppressors, and he, he's speaking in like maybe 68 at this point, 65. Mm-hmm. If black Americans were to do it toward their own oppressors, you know, they're immediately shot down as... Well, either literally shot down or just denigrated. Mm -hmm. And he's saying there's a hypocrisy there. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like that made me think about America in general, how it started, what it represents. Am I how committed am I to nonviolence in general? And I don't have an answer to these questions. I just thought it was really interesting what it got to. Like just from what you know of American history, what what was the revolutionary war about like probably it's multiple things Mm -hmm. but let's just let's go all the way back to the beginning you know we fight for independence from britain Mm. um even before that right so uh baldwin actually makes a great point in where he says uh the movie's narrated by samuel jackson who i thought did a great job too i didn't even recognize his Uh, voice did you he definitely i knew going into the film that he had done that oh you did okay um but i uh, he made himself sound like james baldwin like yeah quite a bit it was pretty Uh, close yeah uh so james baldwin uh made a point 
as narrated by Samuel Jackson at some point in the film where he says, I know my ancestors came here unwillingly, but I know too that the oppressors of my ancestors and my present, uh, 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 those, those who oppress me presently, their ancestors didn't come here voluntarily either generally. And that is very true. Um, in many ways. So, you know, the, um, the, the story is uh, okay. So, you know, history is not really the past. History is the stories we tell ourselves about the past. So, there's like a, a, uh, uh, a very popular narrative of the founding of this country, which is uh, white people, uh, you know, from England, from the British Isles, who are exiled because of their religious beliefs. They face oppression back home. They, you know, found a colony where they won't be oppressed. And there is truth in that claim. So, that, that definitely did happen, the Puritan. Um, Immigration to this country is definitely a thing. Uh, immediately thereafter, you have uh, indentured servitude to support those colonies. So Irish people who are being displaced from, displaced from their home, um, which had been going on since Cromwell, right? So uh, you have Irish and Scottish people that are abandoning their homes because of poverty, uh, because of the consolidation of land under a few you know, owners. So we have so there's a, a lot of different reasons that white people, too, as Baldwin points out, came to this country un- unwillingly. Yeah, well. when he when you said that or repeated that, I was just thinking, oh, well, they they came here of their free will, but they were fleeing persecution. But you're saying or starvation. Plenty of yeah. So Irish, the Norwegian. So that's really, that's really no, there's no choice there. Right. I mean, it's it's die or move here. Yeah. It's one or the other. And for um, you know, so I, I'm not. Baldwin nor myself are making the claim that the narrative is the same. Um, but in in a moment where he tries to hash out where some of this comes from, he does make the point that there that the uh, <laughs> one of the themes of living in this country is we need is is learning how we fit into each other's narrative as Americans. So what is this land? What does it mean? Uh, what are the things that make it what it is? What are the things we like to tell ourselves about what it means to be an American? Where is that? Where is that going? And he makes a great point too, where he says, uh, "the the the American dream fails us if it excludes some Americans and not all." And that is that shakes down to the, the real roots about what what do we what is our narrative that we tell ourselves what it, what it, does it mean to be an american what does it mean to live the american dream what is uh what does it mean to call ourselves americans and with one people claiming ownership over that and not granting that to others it's 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 moot it's meaningless well so it's obvious how that happened in the past like with slavery mm-hmm. It's not as obvious how that continues in the present. One of the arguments that Baldwin made and that Ta-Nehisi Coates makes as well, who's kind of like a modern day, he's very influenced by Baldwin, uh, and that the film did a really interesting thing with. So the claim is that basically upper crust white society is built on the backs of slavery. Originally it was, and then over time it's more like maybe a necessary distinction. Like, the argument is, in order for the ice cream socials and the prom nights and the white picket fence and the beach club and the whatever, in order for that to exist for the middle or upper middle class white American, you know, 
society. There has to be some other segment of society sort of paying the cost of that in cheap labor, in uh, reduced cultural sort of um, power or a reduced cultural voice, um, margin marginalized to the side for like the argument is you need someone paying the cost mm. of that American dream to exist. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, call, that's what he refers to as the American dream. And the film was interesting because what they would do is they would juxtapose footage of like Baldwin's era. So 1960s advertisements or like musicals, you know, kind of like Beach Agogo musicals or Cary Grant and uh, what was her name? And Doris Day. And Doris Day like dancing. And the pajama game and all of these. Yeah. Yeah. In these like super innocent kind of Hollywood productions, super, super white. Mm-hmm. And very suburban and clean and old fashioned. And what's interesting about that argument is that just does not exist by itself. If you don't have black slavery, then you've got Chinese laundry or you've got native uh, you've got natives being pushed out of their land, which a uh, point that they make in that film very which visibly they make too. it. Yeah. Or you have mm-hmm. migrant workers picking your fruit mm-hmm. so that you can take it to market. Mm-hmm. At a good price and and make a upper middle class or upper class wage. Well, I think that's a big point about the American dream. The American dream is almost uh, almost certainly uh, middle class, right? Yeah, and I think and, that's true. and so the the uh, they make that point in the Baldwin film as well, uh, showing a film that's made by the. Uh, I think it's by the Com- Department of Commerce or something like that, and it's a it's a documentary on how advertisers can more effectively sell to a new market yeah. of black uh, middle class, yeah, black middle class families, uh, yeah, and that's and so that's it's telling, uh, looking at that, you know, saying like, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, this is how the American dream sees equality coming to fruition by like, here's a new market for us. They've well, made it right. <laughs> you know? No, and that's interesting because. So so just to make that a little clearer for you guys, there was like a clip that was played, yeah, from some sort of like Department of Commerce or maybe at some like advertisers conference or something of like, there's $15 billion in middle class African American households and it's all this footage of like 60s black families doing all the things you think white families do, like Father shopping. Father son cleaning their car. Yeah, shopping in, at the mm. appliance store for uh, a dishwasher or a whatever. Black, a black father writing a check on his desk. Yeah, know, writing a check, and they're talking <laughs> about how much money there is in this yeah. new market. But that is indicative of something. It is indicative of the inherent claim that mm. this is the dream. Mm-hmm. And the American dream basically has remained the same for 100 years now or so, maybe 80, 90 years of like, you own a home in the suburbs. You have two cars. You have appliances that save you time. Your children grow up in a safe, clean neighborhood uh, to become themselves mm-hmm. upper middle class. And, the promise of education, the promise of yeah. your children can grow up and be anything they like. Uh, yeah. So the interesting thing, and I'm not really making a, a claim here about my own views, but I have found this argument of Baldwin's and Coates's very interesting. Is there an underbelly to that dream by necessity? Is there any way to achieve the American dream without subjugation? I would say it's possible. And I think maybe with 
technology and automation and computing power, there may become a way to do that. But thus far in the world, it has not happened. I think Baldwin would share your claim that it's possible. But I think Baldwin's uh, I think Baldwin's hope that he shares in the movie is a uh, a revolution of of thought, really, in yeah. how we approach relations relationships between between races, and that actually might be a good uh, like time to bring up that second point of that philosopher that uh, came on that show, that philosophy professor that came on. Yeah, that show. yeah. So that's great. So I, I was just going to say that Baldwin kind of kept hammering that. This is really not about race. It's about the soul of America. Can America have a sustainable vision of itself, mm-hmm. really? And so, okay, so why don't you tell us what happened with the philosopher? Well, yeah. Um, He's on and, the Dick Cavett show. It's like mm-hmm, 68 or 1968, something like that. 1968. And a uh, professor, I, I think Weiss was his name. Yeah, like uh, a Yale philosopher professor. Yeah. Uh, comes on the show as a guest as well. And before that, uh, what Dan said about the – what you said about the um, – that's the, the, the really the soul of America. This is important uh, going into this because I think that's uh, Baldwin's worldview on on how the American how economically and socially that can come about. And that that's a theme he brings up a couple of times. And they show footage of like, uh, you know, uh, the Ferguson protests and, uh, and you know, some of the uh, modern day Black Lives Matter protests and stuff like that. And that's that's him. That's him sh- showing his like Cassandra complex, you know, seeing the future of, you know, can the soul of America survived this. And then, you know, here we are, you know, 40 years in the future. But, um, so this professor comes aboard, uh, the, uh, you know, onto the show and, uh, uh, Dick Cavett says, you know, did you, uh, you know, disagree with anything. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, well, I disagree with a lot of it. And he proceeds to deliver an argument that I hear a lot. I, and I hear it, uh, it seems to be a pan generational, uh, argument that I hear, I hear it from our parents' generation. I hear it from our generation too. And uh, actually, frankly, my grandmother's still around, and I hear this argument from her as well, which is, why does everything have to be about race? Yeah. And he he uses kind of what you're talking about that um, that Baldwin said. It's not about race; it's about the soul of America. Well, he kind of dovetails off of that and says, why must we look at a man by his race? Which seems like a sympathetic comment to say to a man yeah. like Baldwin. Uh, but it's not. What he's saying is, you know, there are many ways to gauge a man. Uh, look at all the things that uh, a black man can achieve in this nation. Look at all the th- other things, the the other uh, uh, places in society where black. Well, that's not exactly Americans what he said. What what he said was, for instance, you and I have mm-hmm. more in common than I have in common with like a white sharecropper. For because instance, you're an author and I'm a philosopher and. Mm-hmm. You know, we've probably read a lot of the same books and mm-hmm. have some of the same opinions. And and he's the the philosopher guy was trying to say who was white, by the way. That's who, important. Who was was trying to say like, why does it have to be about race at all? Like, are everyone is an individual? So he's basically reacting against identity politics, is what is how he sure. would say it today. Sure, and that's a really attractive position to take. Yeah. And in some senses, it's obviously true. Um, it's it's not untrue. Yeah. Um. In many ways, but I I would. But Baldwin Baldwin's a, Baldwin answer. A, uh, Baldwin's answer is is amazing, which is, uh, you are asking me 
uh, to deny the evidence that I see around me on a day-to-day basis. You're, you're asking me to issue my children's school books in which white people founded this country where there are only pictures of white people. You're asking me to buy from advertisements uh, that show white people exclusively buying these products. You are asking me to, to look at the way uh, the, the color of police officers and the people that they arrest. You're, if, if given all of this evidence, yeah. would you believe that? Yeah, yeah. His his argument is kind of like this distinction that we've made on the show a lot between the individual racist thoughts that a person may or may not have and institutions that promote racist outcomes. So he says, like in his response, he's like, I don't know if all the individual men running the finance committees in America, the finance lobby, are racist. I just know that the banks will force us into the ghettos. And what he's referring to is redlining practice, Mm -hmm. which... In, by the mid '60s, was still rampant. Oh yeah, uh, it only it only left progressive Seattle in like 1960 or something like that. Uh, he also says in regard to churches, he says, uh, "Do white Christians hate black men? I don't know. I don't know what white Christians think on an individual basis." And yet, there is a very clear line drawn. He said, "The most segregated time uh, in America is high noon on Sunday." Yeah, and he was quoting Malcolm X. Right, yeah. that's correct. And there's there's uh, uh, you know white churches and there's black churches, and so looking at that evidence. Uh, we live in a we live in a country that is looking at things by race. I am not saying anything new, and that's Baldwin's claim. There. Yeah, that's really interesting. He's he's basically saying, look, I'm not the one here saying that everything's about race. Just look around you, and I think that he really issues this command, not a command. He issues a challenge, um, kind of routinely throughout the film, um, or you know, they the film uses his words to to issue this challenge of like. Can you, might you, white person, be afraid of the black population? Might you in some way be afraid and need a kind of a scapegoat, need a group of people that is below you? And man, that's, it's, I mean, that's something that's crossed my mind. It's, it's really difficult to answer that question on a personal level. I don't, I don't know if I need that or, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, I think it's really interesting to think about. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the point that he brings up in the uh, Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier film, which I want to say is the, was it the unlucky ones? It's a a prison escape movie. So they're all working. Yeah. Yeah. uh, They are chained together. They're literally a white and a black guy prisoner chained at the wrist to each other. Escaping a work, a a road work gang. And he makes a great point in, and they're showing footage from that film through it well, while he's narrating. But he says, uh, um, black America, well, the point the film is making in the two characters is black men uh, act out of, a fe- out of a distrust and fear uh, that is nameable, that is historically represented, that is, uh, that has the weight of slavery and the weight of history in it. Uh, the white man as represented by tony curtis uh acts out of a fear that is ageless and nameless one that they cannot describe one that that is bred into us uh fear of uh black men and that and then they obviously show you know uh footage of uh white cops arresting black criminals and things like that yeah. and so it, it really uh br- drives home that point 
Um, well, I thought what was interesting when he was talking about that film was so in the film they show kind of the final scene where obviously earlier they're fighting at this point they've made up and the black prisoner has made it onto this train and the white prisoner can't quite reach him and he gets his hand you know and like they're running along with the train and he he can't hold on he jumps off and so then the black prisoner jumps off as well and uh baldwin said he jumped off so that the white film goer can be assured that yeah there have been mistakes in the past but ultimately you're not to blame for anything or something like that to basically pacify the white viewer because the guilt assuage be, the guilt because if the black prisoner had gone and gone and and succeeded where the white hadn't that that would have been unacceptable for the white audience right and, and yet, that's really even interesting that ending, even that ending was uh he said he uh, watched it in a crowded theater where the black people are shouting to Sidney Poitier, like, get back on the train. Get back on the train, you uh, idiot. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so that's so in assuaging white guilt uh, at the expense of uh, maybe logic and uh, and the feeling for black audiences that he's a fool, you know, and that's that's the expense. Yeah. It's just very strange. I don't, I don't you know, look. Just to be clear here, I'm kind of putting on my um, most liberal friendly hat and just trying to be honest with myself and ask these questions. I don't know what the answers are to these things. Ryan, uh, you are to the left of me, mm. politically, generally speaking, uh, which is fine. It doesn't affect our friendship. I really enjoy it. Oh, that's good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it is good. <laughs> um, so there's one other thing that we wanted to chat about from the film. What was it? Um, we wanted to talk about uh, well on our on our ride home. Uh, we were talking about uh, if we if you want to get into this, um, the idea of reverse racism and the idea of um, uh, identity politics and its successes and failures. And I feel like we had a good conversation going about um, an argument that I hear uh from my father's generation um about the inherent inequality and danger of things like affirmative action yeah uh, and our our role in uh trying to create a new conversation a new america in which uh people have uh equal footing maybe uh at the expense of maybe uh, you know, someone, some, an economist, uh, I was talking to uh, an economist one time and he was saying there's a difference between, uh, price and cost. Uh, and, uh, some things cost things that aren't, uh, reflected in the price and kind of what you were talking about, what we were talking about earlier that the American dream comes at maybe a price and a cost. Yeah. That's the, that's the claim. Yeah. Right. So I think, uh, we can start that conversation, uh, definitely about, you know, the different as there's a difference between price and cost, is there a difference between uh, uh, equality and, and fairness? Yeah. Or, yeah. I think that that's really interesting. And that really plays nicely into the Jonathan Haidt stuff that I've been reading and, and talking about pretty endlessly on the show, which I haven't gotten into this particular aspect. But Haidt makes the distinction that both conservatives and liberals care about fairness but they view it differently. Mm. Liberals tend to view fairness as equality mm. and conservatives tend to view fairness as proportionality. Mm -hmm. 
So let's take this instance. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, um, a man who had lost a job because of affirmative action, a white man, mm-hmm. right? Now, if a liberal hears that, they go, well, look, that sucks, but also millions of slaves were bought and sold, <laughs> and they had a lot worse than just losing a job, and we're trying to, like, equal this thing out. We're trying to equal out the playing field, an equal playing field. So fairness as equality. But someone with a conservative viewpoint, like just inherently conservative, their moral understanding of fairness is proportionality. So under no circumstance does it ever make sense for someone who cares about proportionality to give a job to someone who is not as deserving of it as someone else. Mm -hmm. It will just always go against their moral intuition of proportionality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a possible way forward in that conversation would be to show, maybe to recast proportionality, not in terms of qualifications, but in terms of what it has taken someone to get to a certain point. Can we qual- can we quantify that as a value? Well, it, it's kind of impossible. It, it's hard because it's going to be different in every individual case. Sure. But you could, I suppose, you could say statistically speaking, look, the African-American applicant for this engineering job or whatever it is, this teaching job, has statistically actually had to do much more work mm-hmm. than you've had to do white male, which is not going to be true in every case. You're going to have – maybe this guy worked really hard and still didn't get the job and had done more work. Mm-hmm. you know. And so you want to kind of say – you want to try and find some balance maybe of proportionality. I don't, I'm not a, you know, affirmative action policy expert. I don't, I don't have like <laughs> an idea in the back of my head of like how to do this, but I, I just think that's interesting. Maybe you can start the conversation by acknowledging the difference between equality and proportionality and then thinking, okay, is there a way forward on one or like, can I either convince someone that equality matters or maybe I talk about equality of playing field. Or talk about another word, uh, which I think both sides of the debate can appreciate, which is equity. Uh, mm. And so uh, equity... Uh, As in to treat someone with equity. Or uh, or let's achieve equity in, uh, what we're in, in, in the direction that, in which we're going. So mm. if we are striving for... Uh, uh, yeah, maybe we'll get into my leftist politics here. But if we're striving for <laughs> everyone... Together, yeah. advancing, uh, that is equity. But no, so, that, but that's precisely the thing a conservative would reject. They would say, sure. "No, you don't work, you don't eat. Protestant work ethic. Right. Uh, it, you're you should be rewarded financially based on what you put in." Mm-hmm. So there was a diagram I saw. I don't know that maybe there's a political cartoon I saw recently, but uh, it's it's three guys uh, trying to watch a baseball game over the fence in the backfield. All right. And uh, one guy is really short. One guy's medium height and one guy's tall. And there's three boxes. Equality yeah. is everybody standing on a box and the short guy still can't see over the fence. And the middle sized guy can't see very well, but OK. And the tall guy sees everything. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe equity would be two boxes for the short fella. <laughs> one box well, for the mid fella and no box for the tall fella. For the tall guy. Now everybody sees the game. Yeah. But that's inequal. Yeah, that is in that is that is affirmative action right there. That is an equal. The the short guy gets more boxes than anybody else. But now we all see the game. And that is 
a very simplistic way, obviously, of, of right. describing this. But I mean, but you're I, just describing you're basically just describing in a nice illustration the liberal mindset about sure. equality. And and the other person would say, OK, well, that's a conservative would say, well, in that example of watching a baseball game. Sure, that makes perfect sense because there's not a whole lot at stake here. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about watching a baseball game. But if you have worked really hard your whole life and you would like to pay for your kids college and you have done all the things necessary to get you to that point and you've saved for your retirement and mm-hmm. you have made wise choices and someone else has made poor choices and not worked as hard. And then we're talking about real consequences and then you're not so willing to just hand over a box. Sure. Um, and of course, the what that also what that then fails to recognize is that you didn't start from the same place. And I think that plays into this film. And the experience of African-Americans in which uh, you're taking a uh, – with affirmative action, you're taking a anti-historic argument by saying, well, black people haven't worked as hard as white people. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, it's a lot harder to, to pick cotton well, no, in the 1800s yeah. than it is to uh, you know work in an office in New York. You know what I'm saying? So the, the work has been done. The value of the work has not been fairly reflected. Yeah, for instance, really you know, like there's, there's a, you know, you know, there's a great, you know, it doesn't cost anything to say this for him, but you know, Chris Rock had a great, you know, bit back in the ninety, late nineties, where he said, you know, I don't, I don't want, uh, uh, I don't want f- financial compensation. I don't want a, a job that I didn't. That I'm not trained for, or I didn't earn. I just want my 40 acres and a mule that I was promised at the end of the Civil War. That's all I want. <laughs> just give me 40 acres and a mule, and we're set. I want those 40 acres in Manhattan, but uh, yeah. that's all I want. You know? so, yeah. I mean, like, so it's it's in a way that we like value the work, and um, I think our, you know, uh, you know, I'm showing my colors here, but I think that uh, a uh, capitalist. Uh, you know, modern society that we have right now doesn't actually value uh, some work. There is work that is uh, evaluated at a certain cost, at a certain price, and there's you know other work that isn't. And yeah, so, there are in, there's inequalities built into a free market system. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. and so like you know, which I, I I'm which by the to, way I think is fine, but sure. maybe you and I would disagree on that a little. Well, bit. Well, you know, maybe maybe not. I mean, if I you know if I I. Uh, I would I would change almost nothing, and I've mentioned this. I'd change almost nothing about our economic system here. I ju- I would just say that the rules that we the laws that we have uh, uh, agreed upon and the laws that are on the books just need to be you know enforced, which right. would be nice. But I think uh, our society absolutely allows people to better their surroundings if they're in a place to uh, achieve that. Uh, and some people start out so far below the uh, zone in which you can self-improve that it's, it, you know, it's it's daunting. Yeah. Well, I think we've we've strayed just enough that we'll wrap this up here. Um, I think we both would highly recommend the film. Mm-hmm. I am not your Negro. Also, we recognize the ambivalent position we're in by being or not ambivalent, but tenuous position of being too white 30 somethings yep. talking about race but we're just in the northwest we're responding to the film and mm-hmm. uh yeah really recommend seeing it ryan thanks for joining mm-hmm. us for this little impromptu session well, thanks for having and me. of course thank you to the patrons of this show you guys are making this thing possible to keep going and we'll keep trying to give you some fun content like this 